do you have a friend, uh, maybe a family member, who is really blunt? Anybody have one of those? Like, they just kind of tell you whatever they're thinking or whatever needs to be addressed. They don't really sugarcoat it. Anybody? Right? Uh, <laughs> how many of you take that well? Just curious. All right, so one or two of you uh, take somebody who is very blunt fairly well. Uh, the rest of you don't. So the warning to the rest of you, uh, what we're about to go over and what I'm about to read is what James has to say is very blunt. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus, and if you read through the book of James, what you'll discover is uh, he says directly um, what he feels needs to be said. And we as uh, God's people, and we as people who come uh, to the Bible, who, which we would believe that is God's word, um, we come to it as people often who don't like to hear kind of a blunt word. Uh, today, um, I'm going to be preaching from James 4, and we're going to read through all of it. Uh, and then I'm going to try uh, to basically kind of give you the kernel of um, all of what he is trying to say in James 4. But I, I want you to hear it in a way um, where you might know, uh, as I read through this entire chapter, um, what, that what James is saying is just very direct, um, since we're not used to that kind of speech a whole lot anymore. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open them up to James 4. It'll be on the screen. It's also in your notes. I'm reading through an entire chapter. I know we're not used to just sitting through somebody reading um, this many words uh, without stopping or without some type of flashing thing on a screen. Um, but if you can, uh, do your best to concentrate on uh, the words that I'm about to read because we believe that these are from the Holy Spirit given to Jesus' brother James. So beginning in verse 4, or verse 1 in chapter 4, James says this, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Anybody ever get in fights, arguments, quarrels, misunderstandings, you might call them, um, right? Anybody? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace, therefore it says. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one uh, lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year or there and make trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. What causes quarrels and fights among you? That's how James begins chapter 4. I think if we were to narrow chapter 4 down and just to answer that question with one word, the one word answer would be this. Pride. Pride. Uh, Pride causes quarrels and it causes the fights among you. You see, I titled this sermon, The Problem with Pride. Uh, The problem with pride is that it causes conflict. It causes conflict in your lives with others, and it'll cause conflict in your life with God. Uh, I've given you a definition of pride in your notes. Um, Here it is. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to add a little bit to it, and you can write this down if you want. Um, Pride is this. Pride is excessive regard for oneself, and one's merits. Pride is excessive regard for oneself and one's own merits. And here's what it does. Pride will lead the person to believe that they are superior to others and they have no need for God. Did you catch that? That pride, pride will teach you that you have no need to get for God and that you are superior to others. Pride will teach you that you are superior, so what your life will look like is a big competition with other people. And so if you're married, what your life will be is it'll be a big competition with your spouse, with your husband, or with your wife. Well, I got you this, our last anniversary, and you got me a bag of candy, or you forgot about it, right? Uh, Though you will hold on to those things for about as as long as you can think about, and you will always be trying to one-up one another, and you'll hold one another accountable in a way that's not healthy in your relationship. Pride will keep you from apologizing, Because, of course, you could never be wrong if you are a proud person. The other person is always at fault. Pride will get you into petty arguments over things that don't matter. Uh, Pride may have even caused you to end a relationship with a friend that you would otherwise have if you would have just conceded over something that really wasn't a big deal. Pride will push children to do things, right, that, your ch- that probably aren't even good for your children, but you need your children to do them because without your children accomplishing uh, this level of success in their life, you will not look good. Pride will cause you to go into debt. It'll cause you to buy things that you can't afford so that you can impress people that really you don't need to impress. It'll cause you to want things that you don't really need. Uh, pride will destroy you, and, and pride will destroy the relationships that you are in. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he put it like this. He said, the Christians are right. He said, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, and he says, it's not only that pride breaks up your relationship with your family members and friends, uh, but pride is the chief, right? It's the chief problem of your relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with God if you're a proud person. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, A proud man is always looking down on other things and people. And of course, as long as you are always looking down, you cannot see the thing that is above you. This is why when you look at James and you look at the rest of Scripture, 
that God hates pride. There's, that, that's the language that we see in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, is that God actually hates pride. He hates the pride that swells up in other people. And James here, it says that God opposes the proud. In other words, if you are a proud person, you are an enemy of God, that God opposes you. And I'm just going to let you know this, right? It's not a good idea to be in opposition to God. You're just always going to lose that battle, right? So what pride does, if you're in opposition to God, it separates from you from God, and it keeps you from being near God. And the essence of sin itself is to be separate from God. C.S. Lewis and others would teach, and I believe that they're correct, that our chief sin in our life is always pride. It is the thing that will always separate us from God, and it is the thing that will always con- cause conflict in our lives and the lives of others. Now, as Christians, however, we have a resource for pride or resources for pride to help battle it. Uh, and and this, these resources that I'm about to give you, these, this view on yourself, the world, and God, by the way, those who aren't Christians don't have these resources, or they're not going to think this way in the way in which I am telling you. And so if you actually believe what I am telling you, kind of in this, these opening statements, that pride is a problem in your life and that pride is a problem in the world, right? what I'm going to give you is the Christian solution to pride this morning. And I believe that James helps outline it. It's not perfectly outlined in James 4, but we see it all in James 4. And here is the first one. If, if, if you want to eliminate the problem of pride in your life, here's what you need to do. You have to recognize your sin. You have to recognize your sin. You see, a, a proud person will always blame somebody else. A proud person is always complaining about somebody else. It's their fault. They did this. They did that. Well, if they would only change, right? And and what you discover in your relationship, right, if you're having a relationship with somebody, this only causes conflict if you're only always pointing out what is wrong with the other person, right? If they would only change, this relationship would completely change. We'd We'd all get along. But that's not the truth, right? Most likely, right, if you have conflict in your life with another person, you are doing something wrong. Well, if my, my child would do this or that, well, what, be, what behaviors are you encouraging in that child to allow that to continue to take place? Well, what a proud person will do, even in the counseling uh, situation, a, a proud person will bring their spouse or they'll bring their friend into the counseling situation, and I've, I've told you this before. Here's what it looks like. Um, counselor or pastor, uh, will you please fix this person? Right? We have all of these relationship problems, and here's what I need you to do. I need you to fix this person that I brought you. Right? That's what pride looks like. Right? The proud person will never try to rectify or change themselves. They'll never apologize. Right? They'll never turn around. But there's no pride. Right? There's, there's no room pride in the heart of a Christian. At the heart of the Christian faith is this idea that um, (laughs) we don't gain the most important thing in our life through our own merit, right? Uh, That we are so really kind of steeped in sin that Jesus had to come to earth, and he had to live the life uh, that we should have lived, right? And he died the death that we should have died. The cross is always a reminder that our sin ran deep and runs deep and that we need a Savior because we have not lived nor do we live the way we should. 
it's a reminder, right, that we are constantly given grace by God. And we have nothing to boast in except for Christ himself. That's why Paul would tell us, right, if I'm going to boast, all of my boasting will be in Jesus because he has done everything good in my life. He has given me everything good. You, you see, the Christian doesn't teach that I was a good person going about my business and, and then God came along and he lived a life that I should have lived and he died on the cross because I was awesome. No, like when you, when you faithfully read about what Jesus has done, what you do is, is you, you read that Jesus has died for sinners. That Jesus has died for us not because we were good, but because God is good and because God loves us. If you believe that this morning, right, your pride will start to break down. If you don't believe that this morning, here's your biggest conflict in your life. It's actually not with your family member. It's not with a friend. It's, it's, it's not with any of that. The biggest conflict with your life is actually with God. If, if you don't believe, right, that all of your salvation is by grace and that you are, too, you, you are too steeped in sin, right, to earn your salvation and to get there by your own merit, your biggest conflict is with God. If you are so proud to believe, right, that you deserve heaven, your biggest conflict is with God. You see, the Christian believes that they need Jesus, that they need the life he lived, that they need the death that he died. And they aren't too proud to admit it. You can't become a Christian without laying down your pride and receiving Jesus and receiving his grace. And this is why we're told that God, right, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's the antithesis of pride, right? And so how do we remain humble as Christians? Being humble is a hard thing to do. I'll be honest with you right? It's hard. It's hard. So how? Well, I'm going to give you two ways to kind of remain humble in light of understanding the gospel and our sin and what Jesus has done for us, and it's this, right? To reflect honestly on your past. If the Christian reflects honestly on their past, they're going to do some things that they know they shouldn't have done. And here's the thing, what James says is that for any of you who know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for them it is a sin. Like, how many of you have known the right thing to do and you still failed to do it, right? Even before you were a Christian, right? And after you're a Christian, you do this. And so how do you remain humble? You realize that I have a past right, where I have done things that I am not proud of, right? And Jesus had to die for. That will keep you humble. Uh, the second way to do it is to reflect honestly on your present. Now, now, here's the thing. Like, I, I, I believe that after you become a Christian, you honestly want to follow Jesus. Like, you love Jesus. You, you want to follow, you, you want to love your neighbor as well. But uh, my guess is that you still stumble from time to time. Right? You, you still sin, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do. Uh, but here's, here's what James has to say about this as we reflect on our past. Uh, he's talking to the church here, and he says, Cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, that's really weird. Right? Like I said, he's, he's really blunt. Like, why does he say that? He continues, he says, let your laughter be torn, turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. But what is James doing there? Right? James isn't trying to be a killjoy. He's not trying to tell a pastor you shouldn't tell any jokes in church, or you shouldn't laugh, or you shouldn't be glad. All James is telling the people is just to take your sin seriously. Because what seems to be going on is that, that people seem to no longer be t- taking their present sin seriously. They seem to be ignoring the sin that they currently have in their life. And so they begin to stand in judgment over other people. And so a, a way, right, uh, to fight pride and to deal with the problem of pride right, is to take your sin more seriously. And if you do this, here's probably what will happen in your life. You will criticize other people less. Right? You will find yourselves criticizing other people less. And my guess is some of the conflict in your life is taking place because you are criticizing other people. Right? How many, uh, just think about it this way, how many of your conflicts would be solved? Right? If you criticize other, others less. So, Recognize your own sin. Second way we deal with the problem of pride here is the recognition of God's sovereignty. The recognition of God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty means power, control, or dominion. So to do that, what you've done is you believe that God has power, control, and dominion over your life. Now, this is a problem if you have a proud heart. A a proud person and a God who is in control cannot exist if you believe that is true. What you will believe is that you are not self-sufficient, is that you are not your own, that you belong to God, and that you will consider God in everything that you do. This is what James is trying to get the people to do and to understand in James 14, 13 through 17. He says this, to them. He says, you say things like, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend there a year and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What we see the people doing in the book of James, or at least who he's writing to, it seems they, they seem to just be forgetting God and their plans. They, they forget to remember that they are dependent on God for everything. And he says, remember, your life is so short. Remember who it comes from. I was talking to a man this morning. He said, Josh, I'm, I'm just glad I woke up this morning because God did not owe it to me. Think about that. Your heart is beating right now because God wants it to. I was reminded of a cardiologist while I was reading through this. He was in great shape. He was a triathlon um, runner, and while he was training through the, uh, for the triathlon, I think he was in his 40s. Um, this happened when I was living in Birmingham, and he was riding his bike, and he had a heart attack, fell over dead. No reason, right? And what James is saying is that life is like that. We cannot predict whether we're going to be alive tomorrow or not. Not only that, what James is trying to get at here is that all your success is dependent on God, that every good thing in your life comes from God, Think about this, right? If you're a college graduate or you just have a good job or you're, you're able to think well, like you won the genetic lottery, like that you didn't choose to play like because, because you were able to do the things that you were able to do, right? If you are strong enough to work, right? Those are all, those are all gifts from God who have been given to you. Every success is from the Lord. And so he goes on to say in verse 16, 
He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. He says, those of us who believe that our success is dependent on ourselves and has all come from our, our, our own work and our own choosing, he says, what will that lead to? Um, he said it will lead to arrogance. Well, God's sovereignty protects us from arrogance. It keeps us from being arrogant. Right? We can't be arrogant if we believe that every good thing hap- that happens in our life is actually from God. And the problem with arrogance is that arrogance will elevate us above, above other people. Do you get that? If, if you are arrogant, you will see yourself as being above others. And the problem, is, the problem with elevating yourself above, above others, if you don't see yourself in other people's eyes, if you see that other people don't believe that you are are above others, you will do what it takes to get yourself there. And so you will put other people down if you don't see yourself as being elevated above them. And so what this ultimately leads to is slander. And, and so what it, what it looks like, right, if you see that you want to be uh, above Kelly here, well, I'll use the hair. Well, I like Kelly because she's got more hair than Josh. Well, yeah, but did you notice that Kelly wears it in a ponytail all the time? What's she trying to hide? Right? So, well, you, I, that's really childish, but here's, here's the thing. Like, here's, here's, here's the deal. You will do what you can do, right, if you are arrogant to put other people down. It's the way that your life will work. The Pharisees, by the way, right, one of the reasons that they want to, wanted to kill Jesus is because they saw that Jesus' teaching ministry and his preaching ministry was more powerful than theirs. And so they had to find, their, 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 they had to find a way to get rid of him. Right? This is what arrogance does. So James goes on to say, and he says, don't speak evil against one another, dear brothers and sisters, because we do this. Arrogance actually creates what you would call an inferiority complex, right? where you become envious and jealous over what other people are or have. And so the first part of James 4, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, I I don't necessarily think that, from what I can tell, that they were actually murdering one another, but rather what James is describing is the feelings of hatred towards one another because of what's going on. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. And what's he mean by that? Like, what should we be asking for? And what does it mean to ask wrongly? I was talking to a guy this morning. He said, Josh, uh, I, I need my prayer life uh, to improve, right? And what should our prayer life look like at its very core, right? It needs to go a little deeper than this, but if it doesn't go at least this deep, right, we haven't gone deep enough. How does Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, right? God's kingdom come. Like, when is the last time you've prayed, right, for God's kingdom to come in your life? For God to have complete complete control over your life and for God to start arranging things in your life so people could see God in your life. Typically, what our prayers look like is, God, give me what other people have. Right? Here's what I mean by this. Like, give me the, the health of this person. Give me the wealth of this person. You might, you're praying it for yourself, Give me the status of this other person. Right? And, and you forget all the while that as a child of God, right, uh, your health currently may not be the greatest. Right? But here's the thing that you're promised, 
You are promised for that health to be completely restored and redeemed when it's all said and done. You might be asking for the wealth of another person. But here's the thing. As a child of God, right, you possess everything, right? You are a servant of the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, right, you are a servant of a God who owns everything, who is sovereign, who is above everything. And as a child of God, you are going to inherit everything that is God's. God, give me more status. Give me more status. Make me like that person or help elevate me in their eyes. You're a child of God, right? God approves of you. God loves you. If you just believe that, how would that not stop you from tearing down other people, right? Because why do we have to tear down other people to make us look better? We are already completely loved and accepted in God. Like, our status can't get any higher, right? And here's the thing. Like, the Creator loves you. What's it matter if that person doesn't beside you? This is how it changes. Ask. Ask for God's kingdom to come in your life. So God's sovereignty, what what it'll do, it'll protect you from arrogance. It'll realize you already have everything that you need. The second thing it'll help you to do is to protect you from avoidance. Protect you from avoidance. Let me explain it like this. I'll start out with this. So a few weeks ago, I talked about how a forest fire can get out of control and it can really Run, reap, reap havoc and, and destroy your life. Well, now, the, let's use the illustration this way now. Um, a controlled fire uh, can be very healthy. And so um, what you can learn is that a forest actually benefits from a fire. It benefits from a fire. After a while, um, after a forest has grown up, and especially if it has fruit-bearing trees and leaves and all of these sorts of things, the debris, what it'll do, it'll keep the certain um, plants from getting the sun that it needs to grow and actually produce life in the, in the forest. But if you uh, light that forest on fire, and if you're able to control it, what will happen is that basically all the bad plants and all the bad things around it kind of burns up, and it actually can produce um, fruit on your fruit-bearing trees. Most fruit-bearing trees are, have actually um, have protections against fire um, when it's in a controlled situation. And so it gets the nutrients from the fire and it actually blooms and blossoms afterwards. Native Americans discovered this. I mean, Native, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for Native Amer- Americans to have controlled fires. Conservationists know this. And so what they'll do is they'll set certain areas of the forest on fire so that this will take place. Right. Now, some of you, in your life, um, you avoid all conflict. You do. You avoid it all. Like, you're allergic to it. And so you just pretend like you don't have any debris in your life, um, and you walk away from it because your life is perfect, right? What causes that? Arrogance. Pride. Right? And so what actually needs to happen is you need to not avoid conflict, but you need to embrace some conflict in your life, especially if it's godly conflict, but you need to see it in a way in which it's controlled and controlled by God. You need to enter into that conflict, not with a posture of pride, but a posture of humility. And here's what can take place if you do that. Like, you can actually start growing fruit in your life. Like, God will be able to change you and maybe transform that relationship. Because conflict is inevitable. We live in a sinful and fallen world. 
It's not always going to go perfectly. And this is why James tells us in James uh, chapter 1, 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some of you, for a healthier life, you actually need to embrace some conflict. You, you need to have some hard conversations. And you need to enter into them with humility. Uh, that conflict may be with God this morning. And maybe you're here and you've never given your life to the Lord. You've never humbly submitted to Him and saying, God, my life is yours. And so this morning as you're hearing this message, you realize that your life is not aligned with God. You're in conflict if that's the case. And God is bringing you to that conflict, right? Not so that He can destroy you, right? But so that He can save you. So that He can change you. That's why it's there. And this leads us to the, last, to the last way to get rid of the problem of pride. It's that we've got to submit, right? It's we have to have the resolve to submit in our life. The third response to the problem of pride and the solution is submission. James tells us to submit yourselves there for God. Now, submission is the admission that you are not in control of your life. Submission is the admission that you are not in control of your life. Like, your life belongs to God. Jesus displayed this. Jesus was equal with God, by the way, but Jesus, as the Son, submits to the Father as he's here on earth. His Father's will is always done, and he goes to the cross not only because he loves us, but on behalf of the Father. Now, submission is going to prepare you to be in healthy relationships with other people. Submission to God is going to prepare you to be in healthy relationships with other people. Your marriage, if you are married, are, is based on this idea of submission. If you read through Ephesians 5, what you would discover is that Paul tells wives to do what to their husbands? Submit, right? Now that's a bad word. Ladies, like, you don't like to hear that, right? Let's just, let's, let's admit that. But he goes on to say what? Husbands ought to love their wives in the way Christ loved the church. In other words, Husbands ought to lay down their lives in the same way that Christ laid down his life for the church. So husbands, you ought to do what is best for your life. The idea here is that there's this mutual submission in the relationship based on love for one another where you lay down your life for the other person. And so one way we like to put this in our church is that mutual submission leads to mutual satisfaction in relationships. And this is true of all of your relationships. This isn't just true for your marriage relationships. Right? This has to do with the way in which you interact with your friends. If you want to be good friends with somebody, you have to submit to their will every once in a while. You have to do things that they don't want you to do. Right? It, if they want to go to that restaurant and eat that food because it's their favorite, right, every once in a while you need to go do it. Right? If they invite you to something right, and you say you're going to, to go, but then something better comes up, right, and so you ghost on them, Right? This is not an act of submission, right? And you're going to lose that friend ev- at some point, right? And they are never going to be the type of friend that you, you need because they see you <laughs> never submitting or, or, or never doing what they want to do, and they realize that this is not a fair relationship, right? Mutual submission always leads to mutual satisfaction. It, it may look like for guys, you're going to watch that movie that your wife wants to watch, although nobody dies in it, right? That's hard. Ask Emily. It may be while you have kids, right? You take the vacation that's good for them instead of the one that you want to take. If you're employed, 
It, it may be that you actually do it the way that your employer wants it done instead of the way that you want it done. And this is difficult. It can be difficult, right? But here's the thing. As Christians, we should have an advantage at all of this. Like, we should have practice because this is something that we are doing with God. This is something that we are doing on a daily basis with God. Uh, so as Christians, how do we practice this? Well, James tells us after he says submit to God, he says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. So what does that look like? On a, a real basic level, um, the devil will always tell us that pride is not a big deal. It, it doesn't matter. Go ahead and boast. Go ahead and be arrogant. Go ahead and put others down. And what we're told is to resist that urge. But not only that, when we read a hard text like this, like when you read through that with me, if you honestly read through that with me, I bet you read through that part of the Bible and go, like, does the Bible really say all of this? The devil will actually put that into your head. What's the first thing that we see the devil doing, right, in the New Testament? Or not the New Testament, in the Bible, excuse me, in the Old Testament. We see him asking Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Are you really supposed to do that? And here's the thing, right? If, if we can obey God when it's hard, right? That's what it looks like to submit. Right? He says, resist that urge. To say, did God, should I really do that? Should I really follow the Lord there? And here's the thing. He says, if you make a practice of resisting the devil, the devil will flee from you. He doesn't have power over you. He doesn't. Jesus has conquered all of that. Tell him to flee. So resist the devil. Second is make repentance a habit. Make repentance a habit. I think this is the most important thing to, to protect your impulse to pride, of pride, is to make repentance a habit. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands. And then he says, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Repentance is simply this. It's, it's simply daily submission to God. It's daily submit, uh, submission to God. Well, what it looks like, right, is us coming to God with a pure heart, asking God, God, search my heart. What's there that doesn't belong to you? What's there that doesn't bring you honor? What's there that doesn't bring you, bring you glory? What sinful attitudes do I have? And what we are given here in James is actually the imagery of a priest going to the temple, and they had to purify their hearts. They had to make sure that their hearts were right with God. If a priest were going to go into Holy of Holies, it was so dangerous, they would tie a rope onto the priest, and so the priest had to spend time in prayer and had to spend time preparing himself to go into Holy of the Holies. The rope was there so that they could pull the dead priest out because God was so holy. Right? So you've got to get your hearts right with God. And if it's not, we're just called to repent. Second thing he says, like, once you get your hearts right, what you'll do is you'll wash your hands. When the priest would enter the temple, they'd wash their hands. Now, all this is is the show is that your heart and your hands belong together. Right? You, you can't confess, right, you're a follower of the Lord and say that your heart, heart is right with the Lord if your deeds don't match up. Your heart, your head, and your hands, they always belong together. And so if there are any attitudes or actions in you that don't seem to line up with the Lord, what he's saying is he's saying to repent, to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In other words, right, 
our sin, what it does is it teaches us to walk away from the Lord. And what James is saying, just turn around and walk towards the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's to turn around. And the image here, maybe for some of you, if you've ever read the this, this story of the prodigal son, as a prodigal son of just coming to his senses and realizing, like, God's got something better for me. And turning around and going home to your father. And what does he do? The father opens his arms and says, welcome home. And this is the type of God we have. Right? Wherever you're at, wherever your heart is at, whatever you're doing right now, right? my encouragement to you is not to be too proud to turn back to the Lord. Go and turn back to the Lord. So here's my challenge as I conclude this message. Maybe some of you, you're here and you're Christians. Search your heart. Right? What's there that doesn't belong? What, where does the pride exist and where is it causing conflict in your life and how is it conflicting with God's will for your life? Maybe there's some of you here and your biggest conflict is not with another person but it's with God. And it's time for you to draw near to the Lord. And he will draw near to you. And so I encourage you to make that decision today. To lay down your pride and say, I can't earn my salvation. I'm not good enough to earn it. And so to receive it from Jesus at this moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's urging you to do that at this moment. Let us all pray. Father, this morning... We pray that we come to you as children of God who need our Father's love and care. We apologize for any pride that might be in our life that has caused unneeded conflict, and we pray right now, Father, that you humble us. We know that the humble are exalted, and so we pray for your exaltation to take place right now. We pray, Father, that we lift your name, we lift the name of Jesus high. And that our name becomes less. As, as John would say, we ask that we make Jesus greater so that we may be lesser. I pray, Father, that if there's any sin that needs to be recognized in our own life, that we recognize it and we turn to you. I pray, Father, that if there's any situation that needs your sovereignty and we need to be reminded of your control, that we give it to you. I pray that you protect us from arrogance. I pray that you protect us from avoidance. I pray, Father, that you give us all the resolve to submit to you. Help the person in this room, Father, who needs to make the decision to turn, turn to you and to come to you. I pray that they receive you by, as their Savior. I pray they don't try to earn it. I pray, Father, that they simply admit that they are in sinner in need of salvation. And that you are good and that you would give it to them if they would only receive it and believe in Jesus Christ, what you have sent. We thank you because we know you are here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.